Many of you know that my wife, Cindy, and I hail from Arizona. And it was a little over a week ago that we returned from there, specifically Yuma, where we went for Christmas. It was the first time we were home for Christmas in 11 years. So it was a a real treat for us to be with family, uh, to say nothing of the warm temperatures. Well, when I mention Arizona, honestly, how many of you picture something like the video you just saw? You know, some aimless traveler wandering through the sand dunes in search of water, water. Well, my hometown of Yuma can be a little like that. Here are a few pictures. Take a look. This is the foothills in the the desert. You see houses out there. Familiar picture, probably. It's probably what you envision, these pictures. But I doubt that many of you think of this. Look at these. You likely didn't know that Yuma is one of the largest winter crop producers in the country. If you've had a salad recently, which I hope you have, there's a good chance that your lettuce came from Yuma. Broccoli, cauliflower, cotton, alfalfa, wheat, citrus too. Oranges and lemons and grapefruit. How can this be, you may wonder, isn't this the desert? Well, this is how. Look at this one. Not what you think of when you think of Arizona. Yuma owes its existence to the Colorado River. The city was founded at one of the narrowest points of the river seen here. In the 1800s, Native Americans, specifically the Cochon tribe, ferried prospectors and others seeking a better life from the territory of Arizona, into the state of California. The river is the lifeblood of my hometown. Here in Ohio, streams and creeks dot the landscape. Not so in Yuma. Instead, canals and concrete ditches carry fresh water, the result of Wyoming and Colorado snowmelt, to hundreds of thousands of acres of farmland. Well, my aim today isn't to give you a geography lesson or a history lesson, although Yuma's Wild West history is fascinating. In fact, right near this bridge, just to this side, is the territorial prison, which has a lot of cool stories. Well, instead, what we're going to do is begin a series on the significance, the necessity of the Bible to the spiritual growth of those of us who follow Christ. Remember, one of our core values as a church is growing in the knowledge of God and in His Word. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 1. The book of Psalms, if you aren't sure, is right about in the middle of your Bible. I'll be using the New Living Translation in case you want to dial that one up on your phone or tablet. I encourage you, if you received a bulletin, to follow along in the outline, this is going to be sort of a, a class approach, so maybe grab a pencil or something. Let's, we're going to take a, a brief look at Psalm 1, and then I hope to give you a lot of practical help uh, as it relates to reading and reflecting on God's Word. So first, let's pray. 
Father, thank you for this moment, this next 30 minutes or so, uh, where we look into your word and seek to understand more. Your word promises that your Holy Spirit will give light to your word and help us to understand. So we ask you to be faithful to your promise right now in this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's look at Psalm 1. It says, Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with sinners, or join in with mockers. But they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do, but not the wicked. They are like worthless chaff scattered by the wind. They will be condemned at the time of judgment. Sinners will have no place among the godly. For the Lord watches over the path of the godly, but the path of the wicked leads to destruction. Well, as we look a little deeper at this short psalm, I'm going to pull from Timothy Keller's book, uh, simply called Prayer, specifically chapter 10, which is a, a great lesson on understanding prayer as conversation, as meditating on God's Word. Well, Keller points out three things that are on your outline, and, and three things that meditation, according to Psalm 1, promises. The first is stability. A tree that is well-rooted cannot be blown away by the wind. I, I think particularly of the palm trees peppered throughout my hometown. They, they bend and they sway in the, in the wind, in hurricane winds. Uh, not hurricanes in my hometown, but other palm trees. They cannot be toppled, though. They're not uprooted. A tree that is planted by the water does well, even if there's little rain. The riverbank in verse 3 represents the law of the Lord, or God's Word, the Bible. So to put roots into the water, Keller says, is a metaphor for meditation. It gives us, he says, stability, peace, and courage in times of great difficulty, adversity, and upheaval. On the other hand, chaff, and I realize I'm speaking to some farmers who know this already, chaff is the husk around the seed or the kernel in grain. It, it, it's very lightweight and will, will be blown away in any mild breeze. The Apostle Paul told the believers in, in, in Ephesus that they should grow up in the faith and knowledge of God's Son, to, to be mature in the Lord, not to be immature like children being tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. In, in our anything-goes society, we need the standard of God's Word to give us stability. Meditation leads to stability. Notice that the tree here never loses its leaves. It's an evergreen. It doesn't lose its leaves. But although it is an evergreen, it doesn't always produce fruit, only in season, which we'll get to in a moment. But understand that as followers of Jesus, we are not immune, Keller points out, from suffering and dryness. He says... We must not always expect meditation to lead to uniform experiences of joy and love. There are seasons for great delight and for wisdom and maturity. However, there are also spiritual winter times when we don't feel God to be close, though our roots may still be firmly in His truth. 
Verse 3 says, They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. My wife, Cindy, loves dates. And I'm not referring to leaving the kids at home and going to see a, a movie or, or, or going out to dinner or dancing the couple times we've tried it. Uh, yes, she likes dates, as in date nights. But what I'm referring to is the fruit, the fruit, dates. Surrounding Yuma, there are many date palm orchards. You saw a picture of those. I actually think it's groves. I don't, I don't know. It doesn't matter. There are a lot of date palms, many varieties, but the most common is, is the, the medjool, and this is one of those. It's a fantastic source of fiber, uh, vitamins and minerals and carbohydrates, very high in sugar. Um, I have one right here, and I'm going to just take a bite of it, if you don't mind. I would have brought a lot to, to distribute to you guys, but they're really expensive. One of my band members referred to it as the rich man's prune. It's a little better than a prune. I, I stole this one from Cindy's stash, so I'm just going to eat a little bit and, and put it back in and see if she doesn't notice. She'll just think it's one of the kids, so I'll be, I'll be off the hook. Meditation brings about the promise of substance or character. Chaff can't produce anything, but the fruit, but the tree produces fruit each season. Meditation bears the fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, just to name a handful of the varieties of fruit. Here's an example of a short passage that I've been meditating on for quite some time. It's Ephesians 4. It says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. I don't want bitterness and anger. I want the fruit of kindness, of being tender-hearted, the fruit of forgiveness. I don't want my words to be harsh to my wife or to my kids or friends or coworkers. I, I want my words to be gentle. So I continue to return to this passage, chewing on it over and over. Meditation promises stability and substance or, or character. But take another look at verse 1. Your translation might say, blessed is the one who, who, who meditates. New Living translates it, oh, the joys. And I think they did that because we don't quite grasp the word blessed or blessed, however you like to say it, one or two syllables. Blessed is a lavish word. It's, it's fulsome. It's copious. It's over the top. Keller says it means peace and well-being in every dimension. It means character growth, stability here, and delight. Meditation on Scripture, he says, moves us through duty toward joy. 
Unfortunately, we hear a phrase like, the law of the Lord, and we're turned off. Psalm 119 is an ode to God's Word, and it uses several synonyms for God's Word, words like instructions, commands, precepts, statutes. These things don't excite us like the way they did the ancient poet, because we understand rules as only things that we cannot do instead of seeing what we can do instead of seeing what freedoms in the Spirit we have. I've been wearing uh, a, a, fit, a Fitbit for several months. It, it tracks activity and exercise, or lack of. I want to lose some weight and be healthier. The, the way I see it, the, the less weight I have to carry, the easier cycling will be in the spring. It'd be cheaper than buying a, less, a lighter bike. Well, I ran across an article that was called getting the most out of your Fitbit, all kinds of tips that are gleaned from the manual. And I thought that that's how we should view the Bible. Too often I ignore the stats on my Fitbit, like heart rate and that kind of stuff. I say, thanks for the information, but I'm just going to sit here and do what I wanted to and maybe just flip the channel. Is that how we treat God's Word? Do we get the most out of it, or do we just simply ignore it? What the psalmist is expressing here is how to get the most out of God's Word, just skimming it from time to time, or seeing it as a list of do's and don'ts will do nothing for you. Instead, we're encouraged to soak it up like the tree that's planted along the riverbank. Get every ounce of nourishment from it. I was noting earlier I set it down, but um, from time to time, uh, I'll eat one of these. It's called a Laura bar, the original fruit and nut food bar. It's just, you know, energy. It's kind of packed with carbohydrates and things like that. And I know the thing I like about them is they're uh, uh, all kinds of free, gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free, vegan, kosher, whatever. Uh, the thing I like about it is it, it just has a couple of ingredients, two ingredients, in fact, in this one, cashews and dates. That's it not all the other junk that they put in things. And, and, and so I was thinking about that as, as I think about getting every piece of nourishment out of the food we eat. We need to do the same with God's Word. Meditating on God's Word brings us stability, substance, and blessedness. But what is meditation? What is it? Before we talk about what meditation is, I think that we should look at what it is not. A little over three years ago, I spoke on this very idea of meditation, of reflecting on God's words. This feels a little bit like a rerun for me, um, but you might not remember it. I barely do myself. Uh, thankfully, we have it on record. Um, when I preached on feeding on God's word as a part of our spiritual discipline series, I spoke about many things relating to reading and studying the Bible. So you can get that sermon audio on our website. I'll link to it on Twitter and church Facebook page. I always write out my sermons so I can make that transcript available to you. In fact, if you want today's, you can just tune out and read it later. Um, in that sermon, I quoted John Ort Ortberg, who wrote in his book on spiritual disciplines. He said, meditation is not meant to be esoteric it's, or, or spooky or reserved for gurus reciting mantras in the lotus position. It merely implies sustained attention 
it is built around this simple principle. What the mind repeats, it retains. Sustained attention. What the mind repeats, it retains. Meditation is not emptying the mind of rational thought. When I say meditation, we often think of something like transcendental meditation, which involves repeating a word or a phrase like larabar, 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 cashew cookie. You repeat the word or phrase and it causes you to blot out all other thoughts, to clear your head. The, the idea is to, to, to become no longer aware of any words or ideas, or images or concepts. This is not Christian meditation. This is not biblical meditation. Christian meditation is quite rational, even argumentative. We see in Psalm 42 where the psalmist is saying, why are you so downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you so disturbed? Put your hope in God. He's arguing with himself. Keller says, Christian meditation stimulates our analysis and reflection and centers it on the glory and grace of God. Meditation, as Colossians, Colossians 3.16 encourages us, meditation is allowing the Word of Christ to dwell within us Richly, It is spiritually tasting Scripture. You might write that down. It is spiritually tasting Scripture. Keller tells us, delighting in it, sensing the sweetness of the teaching, feeling the conviction of what it tells us about ourselves, and thanking and praising God for what it shows us about Him. It goes beyond tasting. Meditation is also, Keller says, spiritually digesting Scripture. So not just tasting, but also digesting it. It's applying it, thinking out how it affects you, describes you, guides you in the most practical way. And then he shifts metaphors saying that meditation is taking the truth down into our hearts until it catches fire and begins to melt and shape our reactions to God ourselves, and the world. So, how do you do it? Well, in the rest of our time, I'd like to offer some practical helps. The British theologian John Owen taught that there are three basic movements or stages within meditation. The first stage is getting a clear view of a truth from the Bible, so getting a clear view. Maybe some of you remember 3D art or stereograms. Remember back in the 90s? I have a picture that, of one of those. You remember that? Remember that stuff? It was so popular back then. It doesn't look like much of anything, but then you fix your eyes on the stereogram and you keep looking at it, then suddenly, boom, another image emerges. Another image was hidden in the picture. I couldn't ever pick out the hidden image. I just couldn't really see it. In fact, I don't know what's in this one. Maybe it's inappropriate. I have no idea. So I apologize if it is. Let's go ahead and take it off. Now that image I get. I could see that one. Getting a clear view doesn't necessarily involve straining to find some hidden picture as much as just taking the time to train your focus on some passage of Scripture. So how do we do this? One way is by reading the text slowly 
answering four questions. So you don't just zoom right through it, but you read it slowly and evaluate. This is not in your outline, so I'm going to put this on the screen. You might want to write it down um, or get it on our website later. The four questions. What What does this teach me about God and His character? What does this teach me about God and His character? And then what does it teach me about human nature, character, and behavior? What does this teach me about Christ and His salvation? What does this teach me about the church or life as the people of God? Here is an example of this, and I told you this would be kind of practical, so here, here, here's an exercise. I was reading earlier this week in Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 26, verse 31. This is shortly before Jesus is going to be crucified. It's the night, night before. It says, on, on the way, Jesus told them, tonight all of you will desert me, for the Scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee, and I will meet you there. Peter declared, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, that this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. You will deny that you even know me. No, Peter insisted. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the other disciples vowed the same. So in answering one of these questions, what does this teach me about human nature? I wrote in the, in the margin of my Bible these words, prone to wander, prone to leave. What does this teach me about human nature? One, we are awfully good at lip service. We sometimes we have an, an idea of what we're supposed to say. I will never deny you, Peter said. It also teaches me that when it comes to fight or flight, we usually choose flight. We are cowards. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But what does this teach me about Christ? I think it demonstrates His grace. He said, all of you will desert me. But then He followed up by saying, after I've been raised from the dead, I will meet you. Not after I've been raised from the dead, I'm picking a new 12 and starting over. No. There's reconciliation there. Grace, forgiveness, mercy. It's all right there in that passage. Another way to get a clear view is to ask application questions. Ask application questions. Look within the passage Keller tells us uh, for any examples to emulate or avoid, for any commands to obey, for any promises to claim, for any warnings to heed. I typically read from the book of Psalms each day. One day earlier this week, I was reading in Psalm 64. 64 verse 4 says, They shoot from ambush at the innocent, attacking suddenly and fearlessly. See, something you'll run across if you spend any time in the book of Psalms is that the poet 
is often writing about his enemies. These were uh, usually physical enemies, such as when David was on the run from King Saul. I don't have any physical enemies that I'm aware of. But we also see in Scripture that we are caught up in a spiritual battle. We face real evil forces that mount up against us every moment of the day. So when I read this, they shoot from ambush at the innocent. I was reminded of the battle facing me. And so I heightened my awareness of any potential ambushes. So ask application questions. Another method is to take one verse and think it through by emphasizing each word. Here's an example from um, the book of James. James chapter 4, verse 4 says, You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? Adulterers. This indicates infidelity, unfaithfulness. So who is it that I'm being disloyal to? How, how am I being unfaithful? Well, to answer how, you'd have to look at the previous verse, which speaks about asking for things in prayer out of selfish motives, about seeking only your own pleasure. But look further. It says, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? Friendship with the world. What is, what is friendship? Doesn't it speak of relationship, attachment, mutual interests, common bonds? But what about the world? What is James addressing here? I think he's speaking of the world's value system, which doesn't agree with God's. The world's value system values pleasure, and looking out for your own interests. Well, look further. Friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. Wow. Enemies. Scripture says that Jesus died for us while we were still his enemies. And his death and resurrection made peace between us and the Father. Peace. Yet I nullify what Jesus did on the cross. I nullify the reconciliation when I cling to the values of the world. So think through the passage. Emphasize each word or phrase. Think about it. Another way to get a clear view is by paraphrasing the verse in your own words. Read the verse, like I just did, and then close your Bible. Then restate it. Put it into your own words, into your own language. This will help you to Hide it in your heart. Psalm 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Of course, if you don't know what a verse means, then you'll need to look it up, ask some questions. A study Bible will help with this. We, we actually we have one, a couple available at the Info Center. Or, or there are plenty of helps on the Internet or with a tap of your smartphone. If you have any questions about those, just get in touch with me about what would be good or, or not. I also want to emphasize here, too, that you don't need to go to seminary to understand God's Word. God's Spirit teaches us when we open His Word. When I was a teenager, 
taking piano lessons from a, a college professor. I had to prepare several pieces for a college recital at the end of each semester. And these pieces had to be memorized. I was always resentful of the other instrumentalists. For some reason, if you played the flute or violin or trumpet or whatever, you got one of these. You didn't have to memorize your music. But we piano players always did. I just didn't get it. Well, eventually, I came to see the value of memorizing. First, as the songs became more complicated, I had to study my fingers anyway. I had to be looking down. I couldn't be looking up. I couldn't be looking up at the sheet music while I was trying to play these difficult runs. Second, I began to play the music more from my soul. I would spend so much time on a song, working on it, trying to learn it, memorizing it, knowing all the notes by heart, as they say, enabled me to play with heart. I still strive at memorizing. Most of our worship songs I, I have memorized. I have hundreds of chords memorized and scales. I still struggle with words from time to time, which is why I'm glad we have that screen back there. I ran across a note in my, my prayer notebook. This is where I write down notes and prayers during my devotional time, and, and, and also where I jot down some sermon notes. And this note is from a sermon um, on December 29, a little over two years ago. Pastor Martin was speaking uh, from Ephesians 4, and, and I wrote, wow, such good stuff here. I should memorize all the way through 520. Well, I did eventually set my heart and mind to memorizing not just that passage, but the entire book of Ephesians. I say this not to boast, but to attest that it's possible. It's possible. You see, we have an amazing capacity for memorization, yet so few of us tap into it. You don't think you can do it, but I think that God's Spirit will enable you to memorize God's Word. I wholeheartedly agree with what Keller says regarding memorizing Scripture. I think I have this on the screen. As you work on remembering the exact words, particular meanings will strike you that otherwise you would have missed, and many insights will simply flow in unbidden along the way. Also, memorized texts often come to you spontaneously during the day when you realize how it applies directly to a particular situation you're in. It is not for nothing that memorization is called learning by heart. Well, after engaging the mind by getting a clear view, John Owen says the second part of meditation is inclining the heart. When you've come to an understanding of what Scripture says about God and Jesus, salvation, eternity, our position with, with, with God, after grasping these things with our minds, we must incline our hearts until our hope and joy more fully rests in what we've been learning. John Owen's contemporary, Richard Baxter, refers to this as soliloquy, which is sort of a 
talking to yourself. Anybody admit you talk to yourself from time to time? That's one of the things I like about, you know, those Bluetooth uh, hands-free things for the car. No one knows that you're talking to yourself anymore. They just assume that you're not crazy. Soliloquy. It's a self-exhortation. It says, Keller uh, Keller says, "It's, it's seeing how God's truth should be affecting you, your life, and all your relationships, and then pleading and preaching to your heart until it connects to the truth and begins to turn away from its false hopes and to change your heart's attitudes, feelings, and commitments. So how do you do this, inclining the heart? Let's look at the approach of the great reformer, Martin Luther. After understanding the Scripture, you ask yourself three things. One, how does it show something about the character of God that you can praise Him for? How does it show something about the character of God that you can praise Him for? How does it show something wrong about yourself that you need to repent of, that you need to turn away from? And how does it show something needed that you can ask God for? Luther works the truth into his relationship to God, to himself, and to the world. He asks, what does this mean for my relationship to God, to myself, my relationship to this or that person or group, to this or that behavior or habit, to my friends, to the culture. You might also consider the timing of your insight. Why might God be showing you this today? What's going on right now in your life? How is it relevant, relevant for today? I just want to return to memorization for a moment. Um, you, you, you don't see the value necessarily for memorizing right away. I, I um, had gotten a call back in, uh, I think it was early December, from a neighbor of ours whose, whose mother had died. And um, our, the, our neighbors don't follow Christ, and so it was an it was an opportunity to, um, to perform or, or to do the, the ceremony. It was a graveside, but it was also sort of a funeral slash graveside service. And I actually have never performed a, a funeral. I always play for them, and, and, and I feel honored when I do. Um, so it was, I was a little intimidated. But as I was sitting down the day before, I was preparing for it, and some things came to mind from the book of Ephesians. How can, what can I share about the gospel with these people that don't know Christ and they're burying their mother. The, 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 what was really interesting was that it was just this small little uh, grave, um, small little cemetery uh, where, we were, where we were at. And um, I started reading the words from Ephesians. And I was reminded that the road right by the cemetery, I had ridden by on my bicycle one time memorizing those same words back a summer and a half ago. And so, hiding that word in my heart, God brought it out, presented an opportunity that I could share it in such a tender moment. So, do it. God will use you. It's not just for yourself. Okay, where were we? 
Um, consider the timing of your insight. How is it relevant for today? These, these questions are, are kind of a searching of your heart. It, answering them is a process that is often moving, but it's not always enjoyable. You may be, Keller points out, convicted, humbled, and troubled, or you may be calmed and comforted, excited and filled with uncontainable joy. Look at this from John Owen. He says, if we settle for mere speculations and mental notions about Christ as doctrine, we shall find no transforming power or efficacy communicated unto us thereby. But when, under the conduct of spiritual light, our affections do cleave unto Him with full purpose of heart, our minds fill up with thoughts and delight in Him, then virtue or change of character or fruit, will proceed from Him to purify us, to increase our holiness, to strengthen our graces, and to fill us sometimes with joy unspeakable and full of glory. First Peter 1 says, You love Him even though you've never seen Him, speaking about Christ. Though you do not see Him now, you trust Him and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. Meditation is a way of seeing Christ as we'll look at. After first getting a clear view and then inclining the heart, the third of John Owen's movements could, be, could go one of two ways. It's important to be aware that after working out the truth and then working it into your heart, the immediate results may vary. You might simply enjoy what is being shared with you. Your, your heart is moved as you sense God's presence and the truth of His salvation. Owen says, in these times, we should stop and savor the spiritual sweetness and satisfaction. Do you ever savor anything? Do you ever step back and say, wow, this is a great moment? The apostle Peter did when he was given a true picture of the glory of the man he'd been following for almost three years, Peter was with two other disciples up high on a mountain when they watched, Matthew 17 tells us, as Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Moses and Elias show up representing the law and the prophets that Jesus came to fulfill. And Peter blurts out, he says, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. Do you save her? It was uh, seven or eight years ago when on New Year's Day I gave up chocolate. Not for something holy like Lent. It was just to lose some weight, which I guess is an endless struggle. I resolved not to touch any product of the glorious cocoa bean until my birthday, which is on March 9th, in case you want to get me something. Well, my mother sent us from Arizona some chocolates for Valentine's Day. And Cindy had to convince me that it was okay. She, she had to persuade me. I mean, it was a gift. It would be food not to partake, right? Well, that night, I sat by our fireplace sipping some coffee so the the moment was just right. And, and I sat down and, and I took one piece, only one, 
and, and I ate it slowly, just a little bite, allowing the chocolate to melt in my mouth. I, I savored the sweetness and the texture. It was so good, especially after abstaining for six weeks. One of our girls, I think it was Jackie, who, who was probably about eight, seven, I can't remember. She came up to me with those beggar eyes that little kids are born with. While this alien beast rose up from within me and I rebuked her with a guttural, back off. <laughs> I didn't recognize myself. The lesson, I'm a much better father when I can eat chocolate. <laughs> Why did I just share that? Uh, savoring. Savoring. John Owen tells us to savor the spiritual sweetness. Psalm 63 says, my soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest feast that Godiva could ever give. I praise you with songs of joy. What about those other times when the chocolate is chalky and bitter? Keller sums up John Owen. He says, he admits that sometimes no matter what we do, we simply cannot concentrate or, or we find our thoughts do not become big and affecting, but rather we feel bored, hard, and distracted, like maybe some of you right now, because now you're thinking about chocolate or dates or any kind of food, whatever. What do we do? Owen encourages us to turn to God and make brief intense appeals for help. Be honest with God. Tell Him that you're just not making the connection. Sometimes that's all you'll do for the rest of your time in God's Word. And sometimes your cries for help will help you to, to concentrate your mind and soften your heart. Owen adds that our expressions of grief at the sense of God's absence are themselves ways to show love to God, and they will not go unappreciated by him. Owen advises to end the time and come back at it again tomorrow. Come back tomorrow. Constancy, you see, is necessary for growth. Remember the picture in Psalm 1 of a, of a tree. Those who meditate are like a tree. Well, trees don't grow quickly. Maybe bamboo, but certainly not an oak or a palm or California redwood. Keller reminds us that meditation is a sustained process, like a tree growing its roots down toward the water source. The effects are cumulative. You must stick with it. We must meditate day and night, regularly, steadily. I haven't uh, talking about memorization again. I, ha I have an app on my phone that, that helps me with memorization. So if you're curious about what it is, get in touch with me. To recap John Owen, meditation means analyzing the truth with the mind, 
bringing it into the feelings, attitudes, and commitments of uh, the true heart, then responding to the degree to which the Holy Spirit gives illumination and spiritual reality. Or you can think of it this way. Meditation is thinking a truth out and then thinking it in until its ideas become big and sweet, moving and affecting, and until the reality of God is sensed upon the heart. One more thing as the band is going to come back to, to lead us. When I preach, I like to invite the band back out because sometimes when the others are, are sharing, we're, we're like rushing to get out because we've got to get our instruments. So they're going to come out here and then stand for about 10 minutes, but they're going to, they're going to feel good about it. They won't feel rushed. A few days into our trip to Arizona, we celebrated my wife Cindy's birthday. I've always tried to make her birthday special since it can be easily overlooked as it's just a few days before Christmas. Well, with the help of my sister and, and Cindy's sister Amy, we, we managed to pull off a surprise party for Cindy. She really had no clue, none. To get her out of the house for the afternoon so we could make preparations, you know, cake, decorations, all that kind of stuff. I made an appointment for her at a day spa for a 60-minute massage, a facial, and whatever else makes me look like, like the father of the year or the husband of the year. Well, the plan was for, was for Amy to return Cindy to my sister's house for the, for the party at 6 p.m. And being the queen of delays, Amy managed to keep her out till well past 6 p.m., which was fine because most of the guests were late. If you're a guest at a surprise party, don't come late. Well, we were all waiting for Cindy to arrive. The, the kids were spying out the front window just to, when they were, to see when they were coming. All the adults were talking in these hushed tones. You just couldn't get a conversation started because you never knew. We were all just waiting. The party couldn't really start till the guest of honor arrived. And when she finally did, she was overjoyed to the point of tears. She was so thrilled that nearly all of our family, all of our family in Yuma, on her side, on mine, were there just for her. I think the previous time that all the in-laws were together was at our wedding. And I admit, I was a little weepy myself. So I say all that to remind us that when we open God's Word, we await the guest of honor, Jesus, who is called the Word incarnate, the Word made flesh. See, as we meditate on Scripture, we could easily fall into despair, realizing how far we fall short of God's design for us. Remember that verse of mine, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, when I'm confronted with God's Word, I see that there's still so much about me that's fleshly. I see how I allow my sinful nature to control me. But as Keller tells us, the written Word and its law can be a delight because the incarnate Word came and died for us, securing pardon for our sins and shortcomings before God's law. Without Jesus... Without Jesus, God's Word or the law is a curse, a condemnation 
Galatians 3 reminds us. But it is Jesus who we meditate on. Keller concludes, meditate on Jesus. Meditate on Jesus, who is the ultimate meditation of God. Look at Him loving you. Look at Him dying for you. Look at Him rejoicing in you. Look at Him singing over you. Look at all that, and He will be a delight to you. And then the law will be a delight to you. And you will be like a tree planted by streams of water. You will bear your fruit in season. And no matter what will happen, your leaf will not wither. Josh will be, Pastor Josh will be speaking more about this next week. For now, would you stand as we pray?